everything gets exposed. So then if you're repressing anything and and uh, you're not honest with yourself, then of course it, it has a result. This is where the reflection always of what arises ceases and is not felt. And the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is the is the uh, is the support and to develop that as a as a real trust in the triple jam. Because if you're just going at this life from a first out of repressing and uh, controlling your mind and the dam breaks and you don't and you have no uh, and if you have no trust then you can't you just get confused by the by the uh, lack of control I mean if your whole identity your whole effort in life is to control everything then when you lose control that's what a nervous breakdown is isn't it you lose control which can be a very important part of your development when people that have nervous breakdowns in fact that if they're uh, given the right information it can be a step it can be kind of a step in the right direction to where you you because suddenly you can't control but before you, you could. But if you're still, if you're reacting to it with fear and and, uh, and being caught up in the, in the suffering of not being able to control your mind anymore, then of course it's dukkha. That's where the whole process of it if you're very attached to being uh, rational and making sense of everything and having everything kind of clear and labeled, then the then and then irrationality is very you hate it. And if your mind goes irrational, then you become very frightened and very resentful, threatened. But irrational thoughts, crazy thoughts hallucinations as well as sensible rational intelligent thoughts they're all anicca dukkanata if if you're really practicing dhamma then even the craziest thoughts that might go to your mind are seen as dhamma people go crazy it's a, it can be seen as a, a great blessing <coughs> or it can be seen as a personal failure isn't it? that's how generally nervous breakdowns are regarded as some kind of personal failure that you your life has been ruined and that there's something kind of basically wrong with you and that you will uh, never be normal again. <coughs> you know, people will always remember it. Remember you your birthday. Better be careful. And all that kind of thing will can really uh, you know, put fear and and, and that whole uh, syndrome will can haunt one haunt one's life. The fear of losing control again and being having that pain or that misery. That's why it's not good to be too sympathetic with people's suffering. Because like some of you get so sympathetic with the suffering of others and the sicknesses of the problem that it just tends to reinforce that as something very strong and personal. I mean, 
it's, uh, it's insidious, out of good intentions and kind-heartedness, yes, but maybe not out of wisdom, to get so sympathetic and, oh, you poor thing, all oh, what the world has done to you, and, and that just really increases the sense of it being real. <coughs> Ajahn Chah used to be sometimes almost brutal. Woman one time came with all her problems, and he just laughed in her face. <laughs> life is suffering, isn't it? <laughs> and it seemed almost, almost brutal, but it did, did put it. In, she stopped <clears throat> trying to to pull on the heartstrings and get him to, to sympathize with her. She had to really look at that in her, which was playing the game that wanted the sympathy. And look at all of us when we when we're down or we're doubtful or disillusioned, how much we try to get sympathy from others or have people agree with us. To go along with us, to get the, somebody to go along with what we feel or to agree or try to understand us. I want you to understand me and understand how I feel and understand what I'm really trying to say and understand my <coughs> what I have to do and understand this. And so that there's this there's this pull from the emotional realm of you know very strong heartfelt demand really on others. Now, as, as you grow up, as you mature, then you don't make that demand. I don't expect or demand you that you understand me. I make, I don't make that. Now, I sometimes, I mean, I would like you to understand and understand. <coughs> to, to try to play the games and get the sympathy and, and all that is really uh, putting out to you all kinds of things that hooks that you can get caught onto emotionally. Where in practice of Dhamma, you're you're really looking at that. Oh, it's this it's kind of immaturity that that we have where we're we're always we want comfort, we want sympathy, we want somebody to love me, somebody to understand me somebody to care for me, somebody to look after me, somebody to, and if it isn't somebody, then it's God or something or other. This is, this is a very strong desire, isn't it? When you're caught in that realm of emotion. The astral plane. However, then, when people do go through bad times and are caught in that and then then we try to just be patient and supportive and, and not being caught in, in and pulled into just sympathetic agreement with them but being able to to mindfully and intelligently wisely support and and encourage them toward the skillful rather than just reinforcing the old patterns of Yes, you are someone that has a real problem, definitely. It's very serious, very important, very dangerous, <coughs> something or other. Now, if you notice when you... <coughs> I used to... I remember at Watapur, I'm all night sitting, I start hallucinating early in the morning <coughs> because you're tired and suddenly you, you lose control over your ability to filter information and keep things looking normal. <laughs> so in, in, in the sala, I'd be sitting there and then I'd be seeing faces in the, in the walls, in the, among the shadows and figures and ghosts and all kinds of strange form, the mind would would no longer uh, just perceive the sala and what in the standard 
way that one has uh, that one has accepted uh, that one generally looks at one thinks and has a perception and then always sees it from that when you're in control when you're out of control then the mind perceives all kinds of things changing forms energies places uh, weird experience hallucinations because then the ability to control the mind, you're so tired and, and you're, you're, you're just not, you can't, uh, you can't arouse that kind of effort to, to keep in control of your perceptions. So the superstitious person says, oh, there were a lot of ghosts in the cellar last night. The place was filled among the shadows. I saw this, I saw kind of, this kind of ghost and that kind of ghost. <coughs> I saw the, the spirit of an old school friend, departed school friend, and, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you can give it reality, can't you? And you, 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 uh, you, and you, don't, you aren't aware, you aren't reflected on what actually happened. You're just creating perceptions around the hallucinations as being, clinging to those perceptions. Now, the reflective thought, you see, when you're thinking, you can, thought can be just a habit, one can be just a habitual thinker. We start out with, if you, if you do it like, it's just the way things associate. Uh, the weather is rather nice today, and then, and, but it could start raining any time, you know, the English weather, and then, and then, well, you know what the greenhouse effect is, maybe, England is being affected by the ozone hole and the lack of carbon dioxide or whatever. And then, then somebody says, well, yes, and I read in the latest issue of this magazine about this and that. And then, and then somebody else carries on from that something, stimulates some other perception, and it goes on. And pretty soon you're far away from the original subject about the English weather today, isn't it? <coughs> you're you're marked to just association, which the mind just will, will, one thought associates with another thought. It's like when you're angry, isn't it? When you're angry, you say somebody, uh, you're angry at somebody, you say, he, do you know what he did? It was horrible. It was terrible what he did. And then, then you think of, well, last year, he, you should have seen what he did last year. And you know what he did the year before that? And you know what so-and-so told me he did? <coughs> and the whole connection is based on, on the anger you're feeling, isn't it? The associations. So, say somebody, you're angry with somebody now, <coughs> and then the whole, the whole associative thinking pattern will go into all the things he's done wrong that maybe you don't remember most of the time, but that anger will, because of the, uh, the way thought associates with another thought, then it will remind you of all the fault, all the flaws, all the stupidity of that person, and then what other people have told you about that person, <laughs> it goes into a tirade. When you're in love with somebody, oh, it's wonderful. Absolutely, the worst. You're full of kindness and love and, and real wisdom, and I just feel so alive and so fulfilled. And, and then, 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 remember that wonderful thing he said last year? And you remember that all those wonderful little stories he used to tell us? And you remember? <laughs> and then so and so told me that, that he said this. And, and they really were so inspiring and so uplifting and it's such a great help and there's helped so many people and so then the associations all go on the positive side and somebody says somebody's angry at the person you love and says, oh that guy oh he did this and he said that and he was no good and he made a mistake and then you go doesn't matter <laughs> We're all subject to human failures and weaknesses. 
Because when you're in love, you, you can't, your, your, your mind, your thinking mind won't associate on a negative plane. That's <coughs> a, a, what habitual thought does. I mean, you start out from anger and then the, all the remaining thoughts go. You start out from, from love and then the thoughts all go on upward on the positive side. And even though somebody might mention some, some great flaw or some terrible thing, you can dismiss it because the mind doesn't want to, won't, won't associate on that plane, on the negative plane, when it's caught in this positive, a Ramana. <clears throat> And when you're angry with somebody, even the little things, just just the way they 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 drink their tea, or <laughs> or the way they wear their robe or something, because they just drive you crazy. And you can get very petty when you're angry. Just little tiny little things that you can overlook. Generally, but then when you're angry, you can't you, even, even the, you know, the, the way they walk or sit or stand or whatever, you can't bear. Because the angry mood is a picky, discriminative type of energy, isn't it? When anger is very, it's, it's divisive and it's discriminative. So you, this isn't like, that isn't like, I don't like this, this is wrong, that's when you're in love, that's that's a unitive feeling. So you 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 want to, you want love. You want to unite with everything and everything to and the the flaws, the things that are wrong, the defects can be just dismissed and not important because that positive side is a unitive function of mind. And that love is un, is a unitive emotion. Unites brings together, harmonizes. And anger is discriminative, divisive, <coughs> separative. So our minds are, we have these two, these two uh, extremes that we all feel. But if we believe all this, like if you believe that it's you, then of course you're always caught in this dualism, going up and down with love and hate. <clears throat> Maybe idealistic, I'm the most uh, people with the most anger and and <clears throat> critical faculties are very idealistic and want to would like to have everything would like to have perfect harmony and love. So that sometimes they they're very intelligent. Uh, discriminative minds are attached to very high ideals of unity and oneness, but yet on a practical level the mind just is endlessly picking apart what's wrong and, and blaming people. You know, you should, you know, you should be more loving. You should be more, and this this kind of negative uh, criticism about people not being perfect and not being what they should be. So it gets very convoluted and confusing, doesn't it? Because it's not that anger or discrimination or makes you kind of totally negative. It's not that you're just totally caught in an endless uh, negative, uh, critical, uh, malevolent, maliciousness of mind. Sometimes the most critical minds are attached to the highest ideals. And therefore the, the suffering that comes from that with a, and are aware of what's actually happening inside their mind, what's going on, they're just caught in the habit. Now reflective thought, you, know, you can take thought, it can be just that habitual proliferation, or it, you, in reflective thought you're taking something like the time. Time is a thought, isn't it? The thought of time. And then you can go on into proliferating about that, or you can reflect on the mind can 
can move around the concept of time. What is time? What is time as it is? Is it you know? You can see time is a perception, isn't it? The word itself. The concept you can you can see the the common conventional use of the word time today is the twenty sixth of January, nineteen eighty nine. It's it's uh, eight o'clock in the morning. It's, this is time. Or you can think of long time, or short time, or the past, or the future. But it's a reflection, isn't it? You're taking one one subject and and moving around it, studying it. Seeing how the different aspects of how that one thing affects you, and that the, how it how this can be such an ordinary thing, such a taken for granted perception that you never you just regard it as reality. That the average person would just time is time. It's just time. Like oh, it's time. <laughs> Twenty-four hours in a day, three hundred sixty-five days in a year, twelve months in a year. That's just the way things are. That's just reality, and, and that's just taking for granted time as it's conventionally conceived and 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 grasped. But reflective thought is really studying and investigating, moving around it like like suffering, isn't it? Dukkha. <coughs> when uh, Arjun Char came the first time to England. Venerable Kimadamo invited uh, Ajahn Chah to visit his family down in Gosport. So Ajahn Chah went with Venerable Kimadamo and and, <coughs> and Venerable Kimadamo's relatives were there. And uh, anyway, they were having a kind of garden party. And, and one of his aunts had just... Uh, it was was talking about all these very worldly things and about redecorating her house and what she's going to put in her garden and and all this kind of and, and she just lost somebody somebody died but the whole the whole uh, uh, conversational atmosphere was around very worldly things about decorating your house and what you're planting in your garden then so I don't after do you suffer? And Rav Kavadama wanted to translate. And she looked at Ajahn Chah. And she and Ajahn Kavadama said, he was, she looked a bit upset by that question. And she said, well, of course, we all suffer. But next year I'm going to put in some... <laughs> 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 So that was, uh, you know, of course we all suffer. Of course, it's time is time. And, but the the reflection on suffering was totally dismissed. It was too, she she couldn't come to terms with that. We'd rather talk about planting petunias in the garden. And that's what we can just dismiss. You know, and, and but when you're like when you're really uh, investigating, it's not, it's not, it's not proliferating. You're not, it's not conceptual proliferation for pancha, but it's skillful use of sanya. And our ability to think and remember through invest through investigation of dhamma, the way things are. Like with with uh, love, love is uh, can, can, can something like the the very kind of positive people. What love is all? Love is everything. Everything is love. And so when you when you mention the word love, they get inspired. The Buddha taught love, and then then you can see some people. Love everybody. Love yourself. Love the cat, dog. Love everything. 
And then some of you will go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What a wet, mommy, sloppy, silly idiot. Love. <laughs> kind of Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> this country produces a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> But reflection on it, one can see whatever character you are, whatever kind of inclination you have, and that when that comes up, what what is love anyway? And it, I mean, there's a common, popular definition, isn't it? An attitude about love, and then there's a you know, it's a word that's used for almost anything, isn't it? Love. Love the morning gruel. <laughs> love, love everything. In America, they use it for almost everything. And then, so, but then, as a as a reflection on love, <clears throat> it's not an inspiration, isn't it? You're not inspiring the mind, is it? That's an inspiring word. Love is an inspiring word. It, it lifts you up. That love is, has that has that quality of inspiring. When you talk about love and unity and oneness and and uh, and things that are very high-minded and u- uniting and freedom and equality and fairness and and kindness. Notice all these words are are inspire the mind. <coughs> Brightness, radiance, positiveness. This is it's the inspire. It's the uplifting of the mind. Then the then the other the, the negative is old age, sickness, and death, grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish, suffering. Isn't it? The other side of that. So that the uh, the, the that this is one way of inspiring, like samatha meditation, is that whole that whole level of religious practice, of belief, faith, and inspiration, and uh, affirmation, confirmation, is 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 an inspire, inspiration of the mind. It's the kind of monistic. Uh, approach to religion, like monistic theology, monistic <coughs> religious patterns are the inspiring ones. You get into monism, isn't it? Everything is the oneness, the totality, the, the overlying benevolence, the, 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 if you think of there's an, or there's a, there's a universal benevolence and goodness and love and light, and radiance. So like you go to the World Goodwill meetings in London, I go to some of those sometimes, and World Goodwill always is, has this inspired, these inspired prayers. And they're all the uplifting of the heart to this universal light and love and unity of all beings. Well, that's a reflection. I'm not. I'm not criticizing it, or I'm not going along with it either. At this moment, I'm reflecting on it. What is that? How does that? How does that affect the mind? What does that? What does that do to your mind? If you're a very critical person, it tends to be cynical or or disparaging. Then, then you use the <coughs> Ebenezer Scrooge kind of bahumbug, smarmy, soppy, silliness. The cynics find find monistic inspiration unbearable. But then those who aren't cynical, who really who love that, who want to to feel like that and believe in that, they just they just glow. 
you, you turn on, you, you get radiant and you glow. <coughs> So that, say, monism is one, the oneness, the totality. And it's a, and it's a position of love, it's a unitive. Uh, it all is love, all is one position. Now that as a, as a, as a thinking pattern, then is inspiration, inspiring. You know. That you can reflect on. We're not commenting on whether it's true or false, but we're just noting, as as Buddhists, the way things are. Then the then Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, is very much called non-dualism. It's it's what they what refers to not as a monist. It's not monistic, but it's non-dualistic. So its function, its its use as a as a tool for religious life, is is to is a reflection. It's neither this nor that. It's not that that is, or sape sankaranicca sape tamanata, rupanganicca vedanaanicca sanyanicca sankaranicca vinyananicca rupanganata vedananata and so forth. Non-dualism. Neither this nor that. It's a, it's a, it's a, that is a, a, the, the reflect, using the reflective capacity of the human mind to let go, even of the totality and oneness. So that subtle grasping of monistic doctrine and belief. So you have this, you have this clear perspective an understanding of, of how the mind works. <clears throat> if you try to talk to a born-again Christian about this, <laughs> there's no point, don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> because they, they just can't, they don't know anything about what they're doing. They just are totally believing in, in their positive uh, attachment. There's no question, there's no willingness to question, no willingness to reflect on what they're doing and what's happening to them. Because any any doubt is considered the devil trying to tempt you. But you can see that, that non-dualism allows you to develop this, this reflexiveness of mind. This is what buddhi means as a, as a, the word buddhi in Sanskrit. It's, it's the, using this ability to, not, not intelligence uh, that's conditioned through conceptual proliferation and association, but it's, it's the ability of a human being to contemplate and investigate Dhamma. Just like self, we're not saying there is no self, and you have to believe that there is no self, because then that would be a kind of uh, asking you to to just believe what I say mm. without investigating anything. Yeah. Buddha said there's no self, so there's no self, and then you say, well, maybe there no. <laughs> You're not a Buddhist. You question that. There's no self, rupang anichang, vedana, anatha, na na na. So that's a dogmatic uh, annihilator. That's a dogmatic annihilator. It's annihilationism. <coughs> but what is self? Uh, what is me and mine? What is the feeling of me? When I, Beginning to retreat. What if, when you think me, 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 and mine, my ghoul, and my robes, and my thoughts, and this is me, what does that feel like? And investigate, not just, we're not putting the, even the word then you shouldn't think that, but to really think it, and feel it, and, and reflect on just, just the ability of a mind to think me, 
and contemplate that feeling, that mood, that which which arises from that particular uh, perception. Because the word me is oftentimes used, it always represents selfishness, doesn't it? What about me? Nobody cares about me. You never think of me. <laughs> me. And my. My. This is my life. This belongs to me. And so this, this is this me and mine is a in the Thai Duotong and and Buddha Nasa, he he uh, wrote a book years ago called Dua Gu Kong Gu. Gu is a what in Thai is a not a very polite term, but it conveys Dua Gu Kong Gu is me and mine in that sense of what about me and this is mine. A kind of using a vulgar term as a kind of to shock the, shock the minds. This is quite a controversial book, I remember. <laughs> 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 but it's a reflect. Sometimes you say it, it just uh, just by because these words are so ordinary. We don't have any vulgar pronouns like they do in Thai, do we? I mean me and mine can be just very neutral or even very good. I mean, they aren't necessarily pejorative words, where Duagu Kongu in Thai definitely has that pejorative meaning. So, if the polite people don't say that, if you're, you're proper and polite, you don't use those words. Buddha Dasa used them as a title for a book. <laughs> <laughs> but you can take just the 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 pronoun me and mine as a, as a reflection. It's to contemplate. And all these, uh, like Buddha and Dhamma, the whole the whole teaching. The Four Noble Truths teaches some of us is for that kind of reflection. What is a bicha Vajraya Sankara? And then you apply it to, to here and now, not to just, well, Buddhadatha said this, and then in the Visuddhi Manga they said that, and then the Gipsters, and the Demon Nikaya. You know, I read Yana Bureau's book on, and I read this, and I read that. And you get a collection of these opinions about that. But it's applying to, to, to things right now, Avicca, Bhajaya, Sankara, isn't it? Isn't it? We're not, I'm not asking you to read and get be the authority on who said what about it. But to apply that to, to your life here. What is, if, if one is coming from me and mine, then what happens? And you're always going to get offended or upset or confused or elated or depressed by what's happening here. But if you're, if there's always, if, if you're always coming from avicca, bhajaya, sankara, from, from not understanding, from being caught in a self-view with, with, the, with the attachments and uh, positions you take on life, then there's always, you're always under threat in some way, even in a place like this. Somebody's going to offend you, hurt your feelings, going to annoy you, irritate you, frustrate you, intimidate you, on and on. <laughs> so instead of just trying to to become someone who doesn't feel anything, you really investigate what it is to feel, what Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, the whole process. The teacher Samuppada is is a reflective teaching for that. That's its purpose. Not a doctrine or something to just memorize and recite like a parrot. 
not to make you clever, but to to uh, to give you a tool to investigate the way things are, like with Vedana Bhajaya Dhanha. Dhanha Bhajaya Upadana. So when, when I suggest you investigate Dhanha, desire, so much wisdom comes out of looking and understanding the nature of desire. Because we have desires. And so the, there's the, there's the, like you say in your, your food, you say you're hungry, your body feels hungry, and you're sitting here with a bowl of food, waiting to eat it. Then there's the eye contact, isn't there? So the eye looking <coughs> at the, the consciousness of this, there's a feeling of hunger in the body, and then, then there's the desire to eat it. Now, if you take the desire to eat it as a person as something wrong, that you shouldn't desire to eat the food, then you're then there's a bicca bhajaya sankara, isn't it? If you're coming from the top position of I shouldn't have any desires, then that <coughs> desire to eat the food, you know, I'm greedy and I won't ever get realize nibbana because I'm so caught in my greed. And so then the whole process of proliferation, conceptual proliferation comes from I'm greedy, and I have these desires, and I shouldn't have them. But if you're reflective, then you're aware of any desire and uh, that comes into the mind in regards to just uh, something basic like looking at food when you're hungry. Then you reflect on the the the, the uh, wisely reflecting. We use all food, not for fun, not know <laughs> 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 that you're 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 reflecting on that, that you're eating this food for the maintenance and care of the body and your intention to do that, not, not to eat it just out of greed and, and uh, lust and, and, and don't, don't think that your intention, because our intention is not, if we wanted to eat, just wanted to eat out of greed, we wouldn't be summoners, would we? We'd, we'd leave, we'd go out, become laymen where we could just drop into a McDonald's any time get a smack whenever we got hungry. <coughs> uh, we just didn't feel hungry, you know? <laughs> But as, as some of we I mean, we're still going to feel hunger and maybe greed, and one can get really obsessed, as you know, with, with sweets and food and all that, you know, of the life of celibacy, every, all your luck effects on certain things before maybe your lust was kind of scattered over a number of things. When you're, when you're a lay person, isn't it? it gets kind of scattered over a, a, a wide area. In the monastic life, it, gets, it connects on things like food, <laughs> robes, and what's allowable. It can be just as obsessed with, with greed and lust for <coughs> for uh, nice requisites. But at least you're, you're, you're and, and if you're interpreting that uh, from a vita bhajaya sankara, then you feel, oh, I'm a, I shouldn't feel like, you feel guilty about it. You feel, oh, I shouldn't, it's terrible to feel, to have this. Because uh, the avita bhajaya sankara <coughs> comes from the self, me and mine. <clears throat> position. When there's vicha or knowledge, then it's the way things are. And so then you have a perspective, a way of looking at it and understanding it, other than just judging it. Judging it is the judging mind will go on, I shouldn't be like this. And then the, from that from that position, I shouldn't feel this way. Then, then the conceptual proliferation goes on. Oh, I've always had trouble with this. My life, I've been goes on in the whole associative thought pattern, the cycle of self that comes from guilt, remorse, self-disparagement about 
that you're not somebody who you think you should be. But as reflection, then you're then they, then then you're using thought and bringing into the mind. Just taking the say say the mind. It's a simple thing, like a reflection on the mind. So that you, you can say you bring it into eye consciousness, that's consciousness through the eye. Then then call it a mug, a cup. What is this, a mug or a cup? Mm-hmm. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's too delicate to say mug, isn't it? It's big. It's big. reflection isn't it <clears throat> but then you reflect does it this is a it's a matter of opinion whether it's big or small isn't it somebody might see this as a small something small <laughs> if you have if you have if you have bigger mugs or bigger cups then this would be this would be small and if it's and if and if there's smaller cups or mugs, then this would be big. <coughs> so by reflecting, then you see that how relative the the uh, perception is. It's a relative function of mind. Where if you don't investigate, then you tend to absolutize it. Don't you make assumptions that somehow this is a big mug on a kind of permanent state that it's always in itself a big mark but on reflection you see whether it's big or small is what what it's related to what it, it, its position is how it relates to associate with with other things does this say i am a big mark it's just what it is isn't it say it's it, 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 it doesn't announce itself as being anything. It is what it is. And we call it, we put onto it a label. So that's our ability to name things, isn't it? To, to the eye to contact something and put something onto it, like this is a mug, this is a teapot. So you're reflecting on how, how the mind, uh, what the mind does, how it works. Then the then the empty mind when you when there's no thought and more and more you you uh, through meditation you realize the empty mind and and then the need to just just uh, grasp things diminishes and, and receives in your life if you don't know emptiness then there, you don't know anything else but grasping you can't help it it's just if that's all you've done in your life and that's all you know is is grasping, then that's what you do. You have no no other possibility in your mind. So that whole inspiring religious form is has to be a continuous grasping effort. Because it, you you have no no way of letting go. You've not you've not even considered that or or, or realize that, or, or realize the empty mind, the, the pure mind itself. So that, that's why born-again Christians, you can't talk to them or discuss things, because their whole, their whole uh, religious pattern is of grasping. That's all they know, that's all they believe in. Where with non-dualism, it's, it's the letting go and the non <coughs> that is emphasized. Neither this nor that. Not this, not that. Not self. Not me, not mine. Not as a, as a belief, but as a reflection. Is this, is this mug mine? 
And so then I, I can investigate this here, my mug. And realize that, that, that thought is, is that, that thought arises and ceases in the mind. That uh, it's something I create, it's not ultimately true. It's not wrong to think that, but it's not a position to grasp either. So that means a convention, isn't it? It's a, I say, would you get my mug? It's not because I'm attached and blinded by this mug, is it? It's just a, uh, a way of communication appropriate to the situation. Or it could be if I'm attached and this is my mug and I see somebody else and how dare you take my mug? <laughs> Get angry and... and uh, and uh, over somebody who's taken my mug. So this does, uh, I remember also when I, when I was a summoner, I had this, I saw that one thing was that, that I was obsessed with my thoughts. So then the logic came, I've got to stop thinking. That was my insight. I've got to stop thinking. So then, remember going over to Vientiane with this other Western bhikkhu. It was before Laos was communist. And we met somebody, an American on the street of Vientiane. And uh, this, this other monk said, uh, this, this, this American said to this other monk, Oh! I didn't realize you were a monk. What, is, what do you do? What is, what is, what is it like? And this mother monk was very inspired at this time by my insight. And he said, all you have to do is stop thinking. <laughs> the man looked at him and just fled. Remember <laughs> that? So then... <laughs> <laughs> So then I tried to stop thinking, and uh, and I just kept trying to stop thinking, and then uh, <laughs> think, 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 and uh, I would all I have to do is stop thinking. And, uh, how do you stop thinking? How can I stop thinking? How do you well, you're thinking about stopping thinking. Well, stop thinking about stopping <laughs> thinking. Stop thinking. But how do you stop thinking? Uh, so, one, you always come back to, how do you stop thinking? And then, then uh, one, uh, I went through that. It's the total kind of, it just seemed to go around and around and around like that for a long time. And then, then I just stop. <laughs> <laughs> Then, the, then, the, the, then you could see the doubting mind. Did you really stop thinking? <laughs> so the the, the uh, but that was a reflection on an investigation of thinking. But one the, the, the insight uh, that stopping the stop. Then, uh, then that's how I got into this practice of investigating the question, no doubt, because I could see the, see the uh, who's thinking or how do you stop thinking, and then the, the, that actually for a moment when you're not thinking when the mind stops because of the question, and so you keep investigating that point in your mind where realizing the, the non-thinking mind. That's a, a real, that's what realization is. And it's very frustrating. <coughs> the, the doubting mind will always come back and think, well, what are you really, uh, and, and will whinge and whine and, and go on like that. But then, this is where you have the determination to just not to, and the, say with the, using the sound of silence, uh, 
during that time also I became aware of the uh, Nada itself, sound of silence. Because when I had periods where this, where this, uh, this buzzing sound was very strong, and I figured out with that, because when I started thinking and get caught up in my aramanas, you were aware of that. And then when, you, then when you think, oh, where's the sound of silence? And you try to find it again, and you, and you with thoughts and desires, and you, and you just seem to get nowhere, until you just drop everything, and then it's there. So then, reflecting on that, then you, you realize the letting go, the non-attachment, realize the, the way of non-attachment. <clears throat> Not of, of this uh, acquiring and gaining in meditation, but of, of letting go and then non-attachment. The monotheistic religions tend to to create this very division, strong division of of uh, moral absolutes and doctrinal absolutes. So that's that's like Christianity very much from there, as as it generally is is taught. Not that I I assume it, it is not really meant to be like that, but generally as it is, especially by fundamentalists, it's this absolutizing the relative. <clears throat> so it becomes dualistic. Then then monism, monistic religion, tends to be totality and oneness. So like Hinduism, very much, uh, so much of Hinduism is all kinds of aspects, but like bhakti and, and those kind of forms are very monistic. All is one, all is love. Mm -hmm. The one mind, the totality. And then then from there is the non-dualism that is very much... Like in, in, in popular Buddhism, they tend to become monistic. Like you say, pure land school. The pure land form of Buddhism is monistic. <coughs> in its in its conventions. Now I'm not judging them. Monism is is necessary. You need to inspire the mind. Non-dualism is is a is when you no longer uh, need to inspire yourself. When you can look and reflect on the way things are, then then non-dualism is the, is the is the path. Because that's the way to wisdom. That's the the Gnostic approach, the, the jnana, uh, Gnostic approach of religious life is, is non-dualism, and monism is the devotional bhakti. And then you get into Western religion, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, they tend to, uh, in their kind of rigid forms, become stridently dualistic, absolute moral positions, absolute doctrinal stands <coughs> and, and therefore they, they tend to be, if you notice, they tend to be very divisive in, in their approach to everything. Christian missionaries are always dividing up things. They tend to always be causing separation and division. But yet monotheism is is in, 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 in probably as an inspiration, isn't it? Because it it really it, it's a, it's a, it was a definitely a reaction to the to the polytheism of the of the least <coughs> that tended to be dominant form of religion before, say, Judaism was uh, polytheism, belief in all the the deities and gods. So monotheism had to, was more, let's say, a, a you know an advancement from just this uh, kind of animistic polytheism. But then, taken as a position, it becomes 
a rigid dualistic attachment that, that blinds you. Where when you're when you're investigating the whole process, then then one can uh, uh, say appreciate monistic conventions because they're beautiful. The monism is beautiful. It's inspiring. Yeah, no, I find it very inspiring. One could have love. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of light, light and love. I love, I love to go to the world goodwill meetings and think, may all men love. May there be light and love and all this. And it's inspiring. And then, then, then non-dualism allows us to get the whole thing into perspective. It's the, it's where you can where you're no longer uh, bound, but it's the letting go, the experience of letting go and then non-attachment.